I lost $250,000 in a year um, on my P&L. But I just knew that I was doing the right thing. I knew that I had a market. I knew I had to spend money. I did not slash my marketing budget at all. And sure enough, 2010, 2011, 2012, all of a sudden the economy came back. I was sitting on top. And by that time, I ended up being the 800-pound gorilla. So I would tell any small business owner or entrepreneur, don't forget about marketing. You're listening to the Client Catching Podcast, the show that uncovers how high-performing service-based business leaders are successfully navigating the ocean of complexity around growing their business. Now, as anyone with a talent and guts to start a business knows, it takes a lot more to grow one than just being great at what you do, and you can't do it alone. So this podcast will show you how other captains of their own ship, just like you, have found the right strategy to catch more clients, simplified everything, and transform their business. So if you're ready to do the same, then jump aboard and join me, Adam King, host and the captain at Think Like a Fish, and let's go fishing. Hey, how you doing? Adam here, and I wanted to quickly let you know about a brand new 15-minute video training where I show you how to get 5, 10, 15, 25 or more predictable sales appointments every month in just 30 minutes a day, and how you can do all of that without cold calling, networking, relying on referrals, or any of that kind of stuff. Now, I've added that to the podcast gift page, which you can find at thinklikeafish.co.uk slash podcast gift. That's thinklikeafish.co.uk slash podcast gift. And you'll also see all of the other resources and gifts that I've created on that page as well. So hope you go and check that out and, uh, and enjoy what you find. So until you do that, let's get back to the show. Well, hello and welcome to the Client Catching Podcast. Now, a lot of people that I talk to, they have a pretty key business goal, which is to significantly build, maybe even eventually sell a thriving business. But as I'm sure you're aware, that path is strewn with plenty of stumbling blocks. Thing, you know, Questions come up like, how do I build a team of loyal, capable, committed employees? How do I create a strong culture? How do I effectively replicate processes and scale my business for the greatest ROI? And how and where do I spend my money in order to get that best ROI? And many, many more questions that can literally have you there sort of scratching your head, right? And you're probably thinking, well, where do you start? Well, I'm going to tell you that a really good place to actually start is exactly where you are right now, because my guest today is an exceptionally successful entrepreneur, and he's previously served as CEO and owner of Acrobat Outsourcing, where for over over 14 years, he forged this business into a leading temporary staffing company with 18 offices nationwide in the US and got it up to 50 million in annual revenue. And ultimately, he achieved that entrepreneurial dream of not just building a great business, but also selling one at maximum value. And today, he's a business mentor, professional speaker, and acclaimed author of the excellent book, High Risk, High Reward, where he shares this journey of an underdog entrepreneur who took his chances, overcame obstacles, and built that £50 million business. And today, he spends his time guiding business owners to achieve their ultimate success and financial freedom through his company, Acrobat Advisors. So I, for one, I'm really looking forward to, first of all, hearing that good old underdog story we all love to hear, as well as getting some great insight into what it takes to reach the level of success that my guest today has achieved. So I'm absolutely delighted to welcome Steve Shirt to the Client Catching Podcast. Steve, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Adam. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. 
Well, as I say, I uh, I love a good underdog story, and uh, yeah, uh, picking the brains of people that have uh, had some great success in uh, in their career. And I mean, do you, have you found that um, there is? I don't like the word secret, but has there been a bit of a secret to your success, not just in your business, but also maybe how that how your personal life has also impacted on on the success that you've seen? Yeah, one hundred percent. So I would tell you that my personal motto is making every experience you have with someone a positive experience. So that's how I live my life, and that's how I went about um, starting my business. I mean, I really think it comes down to the way you treat employees, building a great team. Um, going to war with these employees to build something really, really special. Uh, and my story is unlike a lot of, uh, is not like, is like a lot of others, um, where you start with absolutely nothing. Um, you take risks, you take chances, and you hope that your hard work pays off, but you got to know that there's a lot of luck involved in it. You got to be at the right place at the right time, and you got to be able to make the right decision in the best interest of, your, of yourself and in your company. And when I first started, oh, go ahead. Uh, when I first started Acrobat, that's exactly what I did. Yeah. And, and I'm assuming that, first of all, it's a great title for a book. I love the title. I'm also assuming that it's, it's not just necessarily about that high risk, high reward in that you're just being reckless with that kind of taking high risk. A lot of it is a calculated risk. It's based on certain criteria, things that you have to be able to sort of weigh up and, and, and consider in order to be able to confidently take that high risk. Otherwise, I guess most of us would just be sitting there going, well, that just is too risky. So what do you class as high risk and well, how do you assess it? It's taking chances. And what I meant by high risk is you're taking a chance on yourself. And if you really truly believe in yourself, um, the risk that you're taking is you're taking um, your personal finances and investing in a company. You're taking time away from your family to, um, to spend time building a company. So when I say high risk, it's really about risking yourself, risking your personal finances, risking your social, your, um, um, your social life, risking your family life. But the reward could be great because if you can do it the right way, you can have that financial freedom, which allows you to do things that you normally wouldn't have been able to do working a nine to five job. So yeah, and it's 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 interesting the way that you put that because I hear there. I, I think that you, you know, you're talking about you 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 risk your uh, your your family time, your social time, you risk your finances and all that kind of thing. And it's all about you're risking your time, absolutely. Because that's the only thing you don't get back. You can always make more money, um, you know, even if it means you have to I don't know lose everything and you work in McDonald's, right? Okay. But you'll never get your time back, and. That maybe is a question for a lot of people. I mean, not everyone wants to go and start their own thing, and that's absolutely fine. But if you're sitting there and spending your time in that nine to five and you are sitting there absolutely hating it and you're thinking there is so much more I could do, I could make a bigger impact in the world, that in itself is a risk. Absolutely. And you want to be able to control your own destiny, right? And as an entrepreneur, you know, that's what it's about. It's controlling your own destiny, but the risks and rewards that come along with it. Uh, and my story is... Like I said, unlike a lot of others, it's, it's where I started um, just taking that risk. And luckily for me, that risk, based on the hard work um, and the sacrifices that I made, ended up working out for me. And like you said earlier, Adam, you know, I spent 14 years building my company and I started from nothing. I mean, I st mm -hmm. for your listeners that are familiar with the U.S., I was in the worst neighborhood in San Francisco, the Tenderloin, where I could barely afford an office. Um, and I was able to catapult that, you know, like I said, into a nationwide company where I had 
offices all over the country. And, you know, when I started, I had nothing. I had, I bought an itty bitty staffing company that had revenues of maybe $100,000. And by the time I was done 14 years later, we were doing about 50 million. So, you know, and that's based on the dedication, um, the, the sacrifices that I made, but it just, uh, you know, and I would say this about an entrepreneur, it just feeds me, you know, it's that, it's that um, idea of building something special and bringing a team that um, you handpick to bring it to that special place mm-hmm. where, you know, I was able to sell my company for a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, it worked there, out. There great. was a bigger thing behind your company as well, wasn't there? Because one of the things we were just discussing before we started was there was there's, there's very much a social aspect behind it. And, and I love the way that you put it. So I'm going to have to ask you to uh, uh, repeat how you uh, how you described how uh, how you built the company with a certain group of people. That sure. You're Absolutely. So I'm a huge guy of the underdog. I love the underdog. Right. So when I built my company, I wanted to build a company where I'd be able to give people second chances. Um, so I, um, so when I built my company, what I decided to do is I was going to go after the second, what I call the second chancers. Um, and in the U.S., the unemployment rates at an all-time low, right? So you have to think of other ways to bring an employee. So the fact that I thought about bringing in second chancers, ex-offenders, ex-military vets, people with special needs, they made up of, made up of almost 80% of my temporary staff. Um, and it was so rewarding because all, you know, people want is the opportunity um, to succeed. And if you give them the opportunity and they make the most of the opportunity, it is such a great feeling, not only from a social aspect, but I love to see um, underdogs thrive. And here's an example. Um, I had an employee that had one ear um, and the other side of his head, he just had a hole and nobody would hire him because the way he looked um, and he was working um, fine jewelry at like Macy's and he wasn't really inspired doing it. He went to culinary school um, and all he wanted to do is be a prep cook. All he wanted to do was slice meats and slice and make salads and whatever. Um, and he comes into my office and he's like, Steve, I have a degree in um, culinary arts. I want to be um, a prep cook, but nobody will hire me because of the way I look. And, you know, and my heart went out to this guy. Uh, and I said, let me see what I can do. So I picked up the phone and I called a company that is very well known called Google. And, and for your uh, viewers that don't know this is Google has these major campuses out here in the state, especially in where all the food is free. Um, and it's a way to entice employees to come work at the company. So we are, we're a big client of Google's and I called the cafeteria manager there and I said, Hey, Chad, um, I have this guy that um, is a prep cook. Um, he has a handicap where he has one year and the other side of his head is just a hole. But I can just tell that he's just so um, willing and so determined to work. And I was hoping that you would give this guy a flyer, give him a chance. Because um, at the time, Google was looking for some prep cooks. And he him and hawed a little bit. And he says, you know what, Steve, I don't know, but I'll give him a shot. I go, how about this? Have him work um, for a day. If you don't like him, I will pay for his salary. But I really believe in this guy. He's like, all right, let me give it a shot. So he went out and um, said, all right, I'm going to take a chance with Ad- with his, his name was Adam too, by the way. I'll take a chance with Adam. Have him come in at, um, at 6 o'clock tomorrow morning. 
So I call Adam, I go, Adam, I got a job for you. Um, and it's at one of the best companies in America, Google. Um, but you got to start at like six o'clock in the morning and the job is in Mountain View. And for those of that don't know, Mountain View from San Francisco is about 45 minutes. This kid didn't have public, this kid didn't have a car. He had to rely on public transportation. When I told him that he got the job making $15 an hour, he thought he hit the lottery. He's like, Steve, I will not let you down. So come to find out he took three buses in the morning to get to Google to be there by six o'clock in the morning. He's waking up at like three o'clock in the morning. He gets to Google, he does a job, and I'm hoping that he does a good job and they continue to use him. So at the end of the shift, I call Chad, my um, contact, and I go, hey, I just wanna check how's Adam doing? And he's like, you know what, Steve, I haven't heard anything. But no news is good news. Usually when you have a bad employee, you know, you, the managers hear about it. I go, would you like him to come in tomorrow? He goes, yeah, send him in tomorrow. So I send him in the next day. Um, and then once again, I don't hear from Chad. Um, so he just keeps on going to work. So two weeks later, Chad calls me up and says, Steve, we love Adam. He is doing such a great job for us. The employees love him. The upper management loves him. We want to keep him on for, you know, about another month. I'm like, great. I tell Adam, and once again, this kid is taking three buses to get to work, to be at work at six in the morning. So after about a month, month and a half, Chad calls me up and says, you know what, Steve? We love him so much, we want to offer him a full-time job at Google. Because remember, I have a temporary staffing company. Mm. So this, uh, this kid got the opportunity to work at one of the best um, companies in America. He made the most of that opportunity. Um, they went ahead and hired him full-time, offered him stock, um, and you know, five years later, he's still working at Google. But those are, the, those are the kind of success stories that I absolutely love. And, you know, and I've got many, many stories like that. Now, I'll tell you that not every single one works out, but the ones that work out, oh, my heart goes out to these guys. Um, and I'm just so proud of them. And they're like, thank you, Steve. I go, don't thank me. It's not about me. I just gave you the opportunity. You made the most of that opportunity. Mm -hmm. So, yes. So I truly believe in giving people second chances. And the people Absolutely. that make the most of their second chances thrive. And it's so good on so many different levels because at the end of the day, people just want to feel good about themselves. Hmm. And when you give someone an opportunity, especially someone that has been told all their life that they're no good, ex-offenders or people with handicaps that people stare at all the time and, you know, or, or, or ex-vets where people don't want to take chances on them. I want to take chances because for the most part, People just want to be respected. And when you can take even an ex-offender, <clears throat> excuse me, and give them an opportunity that they never would have, uh, have, like working in a huge hospital or working at a huge corporate cafeteria, and they make the most of it, not only are they feeling good about themselves, they're feeling good about they're now able to provide for their families mm -hmm. the right way. They don't have to hustle it on the street. They're able to um, really puff their chest up and tell everybody, hey, I'm working at one of the best hospitals. I'm working. And it just goes downstream, right? Because mm. it's so good for not only themselves, but their family, their loved ones, their friends. They all feel inspired by this opportunity, you know, by this opportunity of making mm. them earn an honest living or making them um, enjoy what they're doing. And, and the ripple effect of that is Absolutely. You know, potentially huge. And you know, there, there is, I mean, I don't know an awful lot about the whole statistics of, you know, I don't know, the, the reoffenders or, or anything like that. But 
unless you do get that second chance, then I can imagine that the probability is is unfortunate that a lot of people end up going back because they just don't have those opportunities because they're not given the chances. And I mean, I can hear the passion in your voice. They're just just talking about it. Yeah, I can imagine not everybody sees it in the same way. So what were some of the obstacles that you faced or the misconceptions that people had when it came to employing anybody that, you know, as you say, a second chancer, whether it's because there are, uh, you know, a, a, a previous um, inmate or a, a vet or anything like that, so, because everyone's got that preconception already built into their mind. So, I mean, that that's a big hurdle to overcome, but you obviously did it. So how, how did you go ahead and do that? That's a great question, Adam. So I think the first thing you need to do is you need to interview them in person. Um, and see, and, and when you're meeting someone face to face and you can see the desire and you can see the fact that they're at a point now where they want to make that honest living. So let's take ex offenders for a second. So I would tell you that for the most part, nobody wants to go to jail. Nobody wants to spend time in prison. Um, but because of their upbringing or, or their social economic environments, they don't, they didn't know, they they didn't have a mom and dad like myself. They didn't have the role models. So they learned everything on the street. So when you're young and you hustle and you sit there and you're trying to make a living for yourself, you do what you need to do. But it gets to a point where you don't want to do that anymore. You want to just make that honest living and not worry about getting arrested, not worrying about spending time in prison. You know, you, a lot of times um, where I've been successful is ex-offenders that maybe are not in their late teens or early 20s. And they've spent time behind bars. And now they're just ready to like come out and just make an honest living. So you have them come into your office. You meet them, you, you meet with them face to face. You interview them like you're interviewing an executive. You treat them kindly. You treat them with respect. You ask them the hard questions. You look for eye contact. You look for desire. You look for um, passion. And, and if in fact you're feeling comfortable, um, you take the risk. You just take the risk. And, and, and you know what? And I always use the phrase, the truth shall set you free. And you talk to your client and you said, look, I got this guy named Steve. He's, you know, he's got a little bit of a background, um, but I want you to take a, fly, a, a chance on him because I believe in this kid. Um, and, and it's so good for you as a company, as a big company, that you are employing um, the second chancers, it's going to make you look great as an employer, great PR, and you're changing someone's life. You're giving someone an, op- an opportunity that's going to change their life. Mm-hmm. And so I would say on the front end, you got to spend a lot of time. You know, if in fact they were ex-offenders, find out what they, you know, you, you do background checks, right? So you know, you know, what, you know, type of crime. But a lot of, t- a lot of the petty crimes and, you know, the, um, you can overcome. The violent crimes, I don't take chances on, but, you know, but for the most part, for these, these people that maybe even made mistakes in their life, mm-hmm. it's not fair to them that they should be ostracized the rest of their life, you know, yeah. so. And, and, and it's, it's, it's an entire out. pool of people that, you know, they, they have not just skills, but a desire. And, and let's be honest, Absolutely. if <laughs> there's a lot of us that have grown up without a real need to have to grind or work or hustle or anything. And actually, you know, the argument could be made the other way is actually these guys are going to want it more because Absolutely. they've had, they've, they've got the experience of what it's like to have nothing. 
or have absolutely struggles or challenges or or anything like that and you know i i mean it's it, each person's an individual right and you judge and i believe you judge one person on their merit and another person on another so to group anyone together and say that well that group's hard working just because is probably not fair but you can probably I don't know. Maybe maybe there is something in that. I d- I don't know. But anyone who has struggled and found hardship and all the rest of it, they kind of have an appreciation for when you know for for doing certain things. Whereas you could, I, I, I don't know. Guess hire hire somebody that um, has never struggled a day in their life and will kind of just sit there and plod through. I don't know. Maybe maybe point. I'm being presumptuous and it's not really fair. But that's my impression of it. Not knowing an awful lot about this particular sort of idea. Yeah, I mean, you have to really vet it out in the in the uh, in the front end, and just really, um, you know, you're willing to take a chance, but you gotta um, really do your homework on the front end. Do the background checks. Ask them really difficult questions. Ask them, um, you know, and you'll see as the interview goes on. Because most people, when they interview someone, you know, in the first two minutes whether you want to hire that person or not. You know, when I first started Acrobat, um, and I. And I bought this tiny little staffing company in San Francisco because I, because um, that's how I got I got started. And when I bought this company, I um, inherited two employees, and the employees I inherited, unbeknownst to me, were disgruntled. And um, the the guy I bought the company from um, ran it semi absentee. So when I bought it and I got there on the first day. Um, the employees that I inherited were blindsided. I didn't even know the company was for sale. So all of a sudden I buy this company and I'm going somewhere with this story. Um, they, they didn't agree with it. Um, and one of the employees came into my office one day and said, Steve, you know nothing about the hospitality temporary staffing company. Um, if you want me to stay, you gotta pay me $250,000. You know, I just put my life savings into this company. So. Uh, he goes, and if you don't fire me, so I had to fire him. Unbeknownst to me, um, this guy um, had my entire uh, customer list, my entire price list, and he went ahead and started and became an instant competitor to me and start and went to every single one of my accounts and took away, you know, a great deal of business. Customers that were calling me, that little amount of customers that I had were not calling me anymore. Finally, I got a call one day from one of my customers and said, Steve there's a gentleman um, that works for your company who started his own staffing company and he wants me to take um, your business. And I told him I was loyal to Acrobat because I've been working with him for years. But if you screw up once, I'm going to move my business over to him. So I knew I was in a fight of my life at the time. Um, so when I first started Acrobat, I was, or I first start, when I first bought the company, I thought I made a terrible decision because I just spent my life savings buying this company. And I'll never forget um, about a month and a half or two months into buying the company, I thought I made the biggest mistake of my life. And I'm sitting in downtown San Francisco next to a hospital. And I'm saying to myself, what have I done? I put my family in jeopardy. I put myself in jeopardy. I just left a job making six figures um, in order to go live the dream of Acrobat or go live the dream of owning my own business. What am I going to do? Do I go home and feel sorry for myself and tell my wife that I made a big mistake only for her to freak out? Or do I just, you know, figure it, figure it out. And I'm looking and I'm thinking, and I, I literally got tears in my eyes, Adam, and standing in front of me is this hospital. And I said to myself, I can 
either make one last cold call or I can go home and feel sorry for myself. And for some reason, I decided to um, make this one last cold call to this hospital that was standing in front of me. So I go into this hospital and I have a brochure and a business card in my hands. And I go to the front, you know, I go to the reception area of the hospital. I go, can you tell me where um, the food service department is? And they send me down to the basement of this hospital. I go down to the basement of this hospital, walk down this dark hallway, and I look on um, a door and it says, Sharon Rooney, uh, Director of Nutrition Services. I knock on her door. There's no answer. Um, I just um, grabbed the door handle just to squeeze it a little bit, and it was unlocked. So my plan was just to leave a brochure and a, and a business card on her desk. I opened the door, and unbeknownst to me, she's sitting at the desk. And I'm like, oh, my God, Sharon, I'm so, I'm so sorry uh, to interrupt you. Um, I just want to leave you my brochure and my business card. She goes, who are you? I go, my name is Steve Share. I own this itty-bitty staffing company called Acrobat. We provide temps to the hospitality food service industries. If your dishwasher calls in sick or your cook calls in sick, call me. Uh, uh, you can call me and I can send you a replacement. And she's like kind of bewildered a little bit. She goes, what do you do? And I explained it again. She goes, Steve, this might be your lucky day. I go, why is that? She goes, because we're getting ready to do a citywide hospital strike. And I'm going to need 400 employees to work 24-7 for a minimum of four to six weeks. Can you get me that staff? Remember, I just bought an itty-bitty staffing company. I just lost all my employees. But ignorance is bliss. And I said, of course I can get you 400 employees um, for a hospital strike for replacement workers. She goes, okay, the strike is going to start in about three weeks. So, you know, I talked earlier about timing and, and luck. So all of a sudden, in, oh, she goes, by the way, how much would you charge your employees? I go, I don't, oh, how much would you charge me for your employees? I go, I don't know, $32 an hour. She goes, okay. And, you know, I just threw that number out of the clear blue sky. I paid my employees like $10 an hour. So the margins were huge. So she's like, you got it. So um, if you can get me 400 employees within three weeks, um, that would be great. So for the next three weeks, I recruited every employee that I can find in San Francisco. And where do you have to employ? And this is, and uh, there's a method to my madness on this story because it talks about the ex-offenders and the ex-vets. Where am I going to find 400 employees to work a hospital strike that's willing to cross a picket line in one of the most liberal cities in the United States um, that has kitchen experience? I went to every unemployment office and I found out the ex-offenders are the perfect person because they've got the experience working in the kitchens. They are not working. They're not afraid to cross a picket line. So three weeks later, I had to deliver 400 employees, but I have to really recruit six or 700 employees. So myself and a, um, a temp that worked at Acrobat at the time went and we recruited all these employees. This hospital strike went on for nine weeks. I paid the employees $10 an hour. I charged the customer, I think it was $32 an hour. So at the end of nine weeks, I made a million dollars. And I had a pot of gold. So once that hospital strike was over, um, I realized that I could, um, I had another resource of employees that I can utilize that I didn't even know. So I almost like walked into it or stepped into the fact that, you know, the ex-offenders and the ex-military vets and the special needs were really a, a nice, um, uh, a nice area of employees to, to hire from. Anyway, nine weeks later, I get a million dollars of profit. 
I move out of the small um, office in the Tenderloin and I went to a different, like the up and coming area of San Francisco. I opened up an office in San Jose, California with zero business. Um, I opened an office in Sacramento, California with zero business. I hired, I hired like 10 people and we were a staffing company that provided staffing to the hospitality food service industry. And we were, and I just said, we are a sales company. And we went out and marketed um, San Jose, San Francisco, and Sacramento. Um, then we grew, uh, the, the, and then what happened is 14 years later, we grew it to be a nationwide company. But my point is it started with this hospital strike that I got lucky at, that I learned about um, hiring a different type of employee, that I made a great deal of money that I was able to uh, put back into my business. And that was the secret sauce of the start of my business. Um, so, I mean, there's, there's so much in that and, and, and I'm kind of just listening to the story cause I, yeah, it's, it's one of those sort of, you know, serendipity moments. It's that sort of, absolutely you know, the, uh, you know, you, you can call it luck, you can call it whatever, but for, you know, for, for, for a, a few things, you know, first of all, you'd invested your life savings into this business. You'd already dealt with some, you know, some crap, right. Uh, you know, right potential employee uh, or ex-employee sort of walking off, taking your entire client list. And that happens more than you realize. And it's, it's a hard thing to then have to, to, to get over and deal with. And, you know, you had, the, you had a choice. You were sort of sitting in, and, and this is what I'm hearing. You were sitting at that path and you've got one path that is, you know, I'm going to go and have a beer and feel sorry for myself, or I'm going to walk into that hospital there and I'm just, and I'm just going to do something. That's right. You didn't know that that person wasn't going to be in the office or was going to be in the office and you know you push through and and yeah there could have been no one there it could have not happened and then you never know what would have happened but it's kind of what i'm hearing is it's willing to do the kind of things that maybe other people are not willing to do and then take on and 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 some people might have gone well hang on a sec i can't possibly get 400 people no 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 no. sorry this sounds very good but no no but you just went yep and then thought how to do it afterwards. And, and exactly. there's a lot in there. So exactly. if somebody now is thinking, right, okay, maybe I'm not going to be at that point where I get a, you know, that, that one sort of lucky break or, or anything like that. You've now systemized that process of, of how you would basically do it again and how you now help people. So do you have a, that, that methodology that you might sort of take someone through just at a high level to sort of think, right, okay, I'm going to go either from zero or I've, I've got a pretty successful business already. It's been established for a while, but I'm hitting that growth plateau. Where do I go? What do I do? Yeah. So I would say the first thing, the absolute first thing you do when you get ready to start a business is you got to really dig deep into yourself and look at yourself and really truly believe in yourself. Like I always believed in myself. I, and the second thing is you've got, you know, and I would tell, tell you that tenacity, being tenacious, is so important to an entrepreneur. So if you look at yourself and you've got that, that um, eye of the tiger, heart of a lion, tenacity, um, that you can overcome anything, um, that's a trait of an entrepreneur. But to answer your question directly is, when you first start looking at your business, um, look at something that you're gonna enjoy. Look at something that you know that you could make a difference. Because um, you don't wanna work for, you don't wanna do a business that you're not gonna feel inspired or enjoy. So that would be the first thing. And when it comes to doing the business or buying the business or starting your business, keep it mean and lean. Um, Don't spend money on things that you don't need. Just spend money on the must-haves. 
And then once you get it started and you start realizing that you can't do it on your own anymore, take your time building out your team because your team is going to be the most important part of your business, even more so than customers. Because if you can get that right team, that team to, that, would, that would be so loyal to you, that would treat it like it's their business, um, and there's a lot to go, you know, that goes into that, um, that is hugely important. Make those employees that you hire, whether it be one or 10 or 50, part of the process. Keep them informed. Don't, don't keep them blind to the business. Um, express um, with them your successes and your failures. Look to them for advice. They know it a lot better than you do. You get to a point as a business owner that you're just steering the ship. You're not, you know, you've got to be in, um, you know, you got to be in the grunt of it. Make no mistake about it. You got to be willing to pull up your sleeves and you got to show your employees that you're in it as much as they are. But at the end of the day, you're driving the ship. You're making those decisions. Um, always keep in mind as that business owner or as that entrepreneur, when you ask an employee a question, they're not the owner. They're not the owner. So um, it's, almost, it's almost human nature that when you ask a question about the business, in the back of their heads, it's like, how does that affect me? Because it's their livelihood, right? So you, you ask the questions to the employees and you get them involved. But ultimately, you've got to make that final decision. Um, and, and as that entrepreneur, you've got to have that mindset that these guys, the business, the employees are relying on me to make the right decision that's going to further their career, further their livelihood, increase their, their paychecks. So one thing I do as a business owner is I get the employees involved. Now, I had temporary staffing, but I don't care if you're selling widgets. If you can motivate your employees... And what I do in my business is I, the, the way the compensation plan is huge because that's why employees are working. It's, got, it's about the work environment, how they're treated, and how they're paid, and how they're rewarded. Um, I want to make sure my employees are rewarded. If I'm getting rewarded and I'm making money, I want my employees to make money. So the way I set up a comp plan is I set up a salary, but I also put a commission in there because in my, in my business, you know, you can have hotels or restaurants or corporate cafeterias call you up at four o'clock in the morning saying their dishwasher called them sick. They need a dishwasher. I got to motivate these employees to go um, pick up that phone at four o'clock or five o'clock in the morning. So for me, I incentivize them on every single job. I give them an itty bitty piece, but if I'm paying them $5,000 commission and I'm making 15 or $20,000 from that account, it just makes perfect sense. Share the, share the wealth. So once you build out that team and you got the loyalty of that team and you're moving forward with this team and you're building something really special, um, it's such a great feeling. I mean, I hear employees talk about Acrobat and talk about my company when I'm not even in the room. And, and if they're talking so positively about it and you, get the, and you get the temporary employees that comes into the office and they feel the vibe in there and they feel the energy that goes in the office and they're treated correctly and they listen to you and they're not just a product, but they're a person and you're treating them with respect. Um, they're going out there and promoting their company as well. I can't tell you that I can take success for how I built my company from nothing to when I sold it. But what I can tell you is, is that it's um, dependent on the team you build and, and the leadership that you provide to them. Um, 
I would tell you that as the owner, it's lonely at the top. You never want to get to be too close to the employees. Uh, every employee is treated differently because every person is differently. Some people you got to get, you know, in their face if they're making a mistake. And some people you got to kind of stroke a little bit. But, but self-motivation um, and the positive reinforcement is so important, even sometimes more so than the money. But it doesn't cost It's, it's a cultural thing, isn't it? It's and a, and that does start at the top because, I mean, uh, we've all, I'm, I'm, everyone has been in an environment where there is, it's, it's a difficult place to work and all the rest of it. And, and when you're in it, you don't necessarily see it. But sometimes that sort of clarity of distance, you can actually see, well, actually... It's, it's fed very much from the top because it is a, an organization that has a culture that is run by, say, fear or competition or, or something like that. And, and you can actually then sort of step away and see how that was something that was just making it really hard to, I don't know, just, just do your job. Or, or I mean, some people, I guess, thrive in that sort of environment and maybe I don't know, but it was never for me. It was always about you know, collaboration and, and sort of going for the same goal. And, and I can't remember... I saw somebody said something around the thing uh, the, um, when you're thinking about hiring. Always hire for values first because you can always train the skill. Because if you have a, a, a corporation or a business that everybody is, they, they, they share the same values, the skills can be taught. But you are all going in that same direction. And, and I thought that, I mean, that's that, I'm getting a sort of a sense that that's, maybe one of the kind of things that you would uh, you, you would be saying here as well. Absolutely. It's, a, it's all about the intangibles, right? Mm. You can teach skill. You can't teach heart. Um, you can't teach desire. You can't teach tenacity. So, you know, when I interview someone for my company, and, and let's, let's face it, as an employee, sometimes you're spending more time at your job than you are with your own family. So I look for someone um, when I hire them would I have a beer with this person? Would I have a cup of coffee with this person? And if I say yes to myself and they don't have the experience and they're green, I love it because I see the tenacity. I see the desire. I see, and, and, and they're likable. They have to be likable because I'm going to be seeing them every single day and they're going to help build the company. They're going to help take us to where we want to take it. But by the same token, when you make a mistake with an employee, you need to let them go quickly because if you let a bad employee stay within the company, it cause, can cause issues. It could cause cancers and you got to cut that quickly. But by the, you know, and when it's time to hire someone, take your time. Don't hire someone because there's a desperate need to hire because it could backfire on you. So yeah, take hire, hire, slow fire, hire slow fire, fire fast. I think is yeah, that, exactly. another one that is uh, sort of taken around. So yeah. yeah, it's absolutely true. And, uh, you mentioned earlier that sort of you 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 actually thought about yourselves as a sales company, mm-hmm. so you weren't necessarily a staffing company. You were a sales company that provided staffing Staff. solutions, and I think that's a key differentiator as well in terms of actually the way you see. Because a lot of people will say, you know, what do you do? Said, oh, we're a staffing company. No, 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 no. When you come in, you have to understand that the number one thing is that we have to make sales to be able to be a staffing company, right? So exactly it's, right. it's that sort of mindset thing in there. And, and, and how did you, so you, you, have a, you had a sales approach to growing the business. Were there anything, any specific things that you did maybe that, that sort of, that, that were different or the way that you went about sales or, you know, did you use, you know, uh, you know marketing approaches? What, what are some of the things that you, you did, but maybe now sort of advise people on, on doing? Because, 
yes, getting the team, getting the culture and all the rest of it. But at the end of the day, you need bread on the table. And that's all about sort of sales and, and bringing in the, uh, yeah, that, that, that side of things. Yes. Um, I always say the lights don't come on in your office unless you got sales, right? So everything is all about the sale. Yeah. Um, and we want sales. And if we take a sales approach opposed to a different approach, um, it pushes you to get that business. So what I would tell you is um, marketing is huge for a company. The problem with marketing is you can't measure marketing. You know you need marketing, but you can't measure marketing. So I would tell you um, back in like 2008, 2009, here in the United States, the economy took a nosedive. Um, and all, um, and the economy was bad. My, all my social business, once again, temporary staffing. So caterers were no longer calling us. Party planners were no longer calling us. I had to figure a way to overcome, you know, that loss of business because I could have actually gone out of business. Um, and I know that at that time I had a ton of competitors. Um, and a lot of the competitors are mom and pop shops that just hire their friends for parties. Um, and I knew that this social economic downturn was going to put a lot of these guys out of business because there just wasn't any social business. So what I decided to do as a business owner is take that risk and market my company and just start marketing to the caterers, marketing to the business, uh, to the party planners and the event planners and the corp, you know, and the corporations, because I know that um, economic downturns are cyclical. When the economy would come back, I wanted to be the guy sitting on top that the companies are calling because all my competitors were not marketing. And we were like the number two or number three guy in, in San Francisco. We weren't the 800 pound gorilla. But I can tell you that the marketing efforts, um, and I lost 200, and, and I looked at my PL that year and I was panicking. Once again, I go back to high risk, high reward. I lost $250,000 in a year um, on my PL. But I just knew that I was doing the right thing. I knew that I had a market. I knew I had to spend money. I did not slash my marketing budget at all. And sure enough, 2010, 2011, 2012, all of a sudden the economy came back. I was sitting on top. And by that time, I ended up being the 800-pound gorilla. So I would tell any small business owner or entrepreneur, don't forget about marketing. Marketing is huge. Get your name out there. And let's not forget, you're the you know, you're the name and face of that company. Um, people are looking at you to take pot shots at. You got to keep it clean. You got to keep it on the up and up. You got to, you know, go back to my philosophy, make every experience a positive experience. It's mm. going to come back in spades. I'm telling you. Um, and every experience is a positive experience. Every, it has yeah. to be, it has to be a consistent experience as well, as well, because that's where the trust comes in and that's yeah. where the marketing is important. And, you know, just as a as a as a as a marketer by uh, you know sixteen years worth, I slightly disagree that you can't measure the marketing, but that's another conversation. Another day, yeah, I I mean, <laughs> but no, no, no. I'm, I'm, um, I, what I want to pick up on is that it is a, it marketing is a process, right? It's a, and what you saw is what so many people don't is it need it's it's continuous. You can never stop it. It's yep. never perfect. You took the risk and you saw actually, my God, like this is I'm losing money by doing this, but understanding the cyclical nature nature of an economy and business and all the rest of it and seeing that your competitors were pulling back marketing isn't necessarily something that you just switch on you know people will will, will sort of claim oh yeah you can just chuck a load of money on facebook ads or something like that and you'll be fine no it doesn't work like that absolutely 
The key to marketing is consistency. Like if there is one thing anyone listening to this just thinks about with marketing, if if there is one silver bullet, it's consistency. It's consi- That's it. Absolutely. And now, obviously, more. you know, you need to you need to understand, you know, how marketing works and 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 select the right uh, messaging and all the rest of it. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, a marketing message that is consistently put out in front of the right people, eighty percent perfect, is better than a hundred percent perfect message that is put out every now and again. One, I could not agree more, Adam. That is absolutely right. And and you also need to protect your brand and control your brand because, you know, that's, you know, that's your business. So I would tell every entrepreneur or business owner, do not forget about marketing and it has to be consistent. It should be one of the last things you cut is marketing. Um, and, and, and it needs to work with sales as well. And, it, and I think there's a massive, hand in hand. there is a massive sort of disconnect, I think, between marketing and sales in so many different businesses, depending on your size. Maybe you don't have, uh, you know, separate teams. Maybe it's one person. Maybe it's you. I don't know. But you have to understand that the, you know, the way you measure marketing and sales, they have to be on the same page. You know, marketing, a lot of businesses, are, you know, I've, I've worked with and, and worked in and all the rest of it. It's like, well, the, you know, the salespeople are looking at marketing and going, well, you know, the leads are crap. Whereas marketing's looking at sales and going, well, you're crap at selling. It's like we are generating these leads and you're not closing them. And, and there's that just disconnect. And it, it's about getting on the same page and having metrics and KPIs that are agreed together and actually sit down. Like as a marketer, this is a lesson I learned. You have to sit down with your salespeople and ask them questions about their job. Like what, what goes on for you? Like, what is a good lead for you? Like, Mm -hmm. why are these good? Why don't the other ones work, et cetera, et cetera. So that, you know, and what kind of conversations are you having during the sales process? What kind of collateral do you need along that sales process that will help you move that person along? And and I just see so much of that as a disconnect that exists in there. And that's why they're like cats and dogs fighting together. Right. So (laughs) I don't know. But you, um, are so, you are so right, Adam. I mean, it sales and market. That's why they say it's sales and marketing. They have yeah. to work together. They have to uh, work hand in hand and what, you know, and the salespeople know what the pain points are for their customers. They know what drives it and they got to be able to communicate that to the marketing folks so they can pinpoint it and, you know, and really attack, you know, um, the value proposition. Absolutely. And, and, and it needs to be a two-way communication thing that's always going on. And that's a lot of the challenge I see, but you know, we, you know, the difference between a company that is growing and has a success and, and, and the ones that aren't, it's, it's because everybody's aligned. It comes back to your culture piece again. It comes back to leadership and all that sort of thing. And, and that's where that sort of thing starts to happen because actually you're all on the same page. You're all going for the same goal. It's mm-hmm. not, well, I've made my quota of leads. Therefore I've done my job. Thank you very much. If you can't close them, I don't care. No, marketing should be linked to revenue. Marketing should be linked to sales performance, but you cannot do that unless you work with the sales team right it just does not happen so right. I, yeah uh, there's so much like it's interesting how it all links into that sort of culture thing and all the rest of it now i'm going to be interested in how you answer this one i've got a question that i now like to ask because i kind of think you might have half answered it but i want to know what you do today because let's say that the question is that i like to ask is if you suddenly had a situation whereby a catastrophe happened in a business you you lost your biggest clients it took of your revenue away, your employee walks off with half your client list, that kind of thing. And you have 30 days in order to repair it or at least 
get to a point where you can make the payroll and all the rest of it. What would you do in 30 days? Or what would be the main things you thought about doing in those 30 days in order to essentially save your business? Yeah, that's a great question. And that actually happened to me. Um, <laughs> that's I why had, I was interested in you asking you because I thought it might have happened. <laughs> that actually happened to me. Um, what, what made me nervous about my business early on is one account um, took up almost 60% of my overall revenue. And one day they came in and said, sorry, Steve, you know, we're just too big for you. Um, this is when I got first started. So I had, so I lost literally $7 million in one day. And I was determined not to uh, lay anybody off. I was determined that we were going to overcome this. Um, and what I did is, um, is a process. First thing I did is I went through every single one of my expenses. And I go back to what I said earlier, the must-haves. I, I got it mean and lean and I cut out every single one of my um, must-have uh, that were not a must-have expense. That's the first thing I did. The second thing I did is I'm a huge believer in you have to have different revenue sources coming into your business. You can't rely on just one revenue stream. So I brought in my executives. We sat around a table for eight hours and we created different revenue streams. Um, for, you know, in my business, we just came up with like, we weren't doing business with the restaurants. We started a restaurant division of temporary staffing. We did, um, what today, um, is called Yelp. You know, we would go in and review restaurants. We would go in and do uh, health inspections in their kitchens. I mean, I was just looking for revenue, but I, once again, I was not stopping marketing because I knew that I couldn't just cut the marketing. I cut myself. I took the brunt. I didn't, um, I didn't lay anybody off. I didn't cut anybody's salary, but I put a tremendous amount of pressure on our sales team. Um, and even though I lost $7 million, which happened in like February, by the end of the year, I overcame that $7 million and my year and that year, our numbers were flat. Didn't grow, didn't lose, but we overcame that 7 million. And as we continued, and, and you know what? It ended up being a blessing in disguise because I didn't have to rely on this one customer that kept me up at night because I kept on saying, what happens if this customer goes away? And the customers, one of the biggest companies in the world, Apple. And, you know, and they, you know, and that's what happened. So. And is a repeatable thing that you did throughout that entire process. As you say, like the biggest success of that was, was survival. So to break even was fantastic. Survival. It's, and it's, the, what you learned through that process, you know, the additional revenue streams, the, you know, the, the way that you go to market, the type of things that you do. I mean, that I can imagine was probably... I'm glad I asked that question because as in, as amazing as your story is at the very beginning, there is that sort of serendipitous moment. But what you've told me there, that story is the real secret. You are so right, Adam, because it's your defining moment. Every yeah. company's got their defining moment. That was our defining moment. I could have sat back and just, you know, threw up my hands, got depressed, closed my doors. But it motivated me. Um, and, and, and once again, it goes to culture. When I told my executives, hey, this is what happened. We need to like, it, it brought us so much closer together. And, it, and I was able to tap into these folks, you know, on ideas that they had that how we can grow our business. And I would tell you, it improved my culture. It improved our, you know, we were getting a little lazy because, you know, we were just answering the phone and we were order takers. It got these guys out and generated business and, you know, we replaced the business and then, you know, the, the following year we grew it. Now, if I still had the, the account, I would be, you know, would have been 
a lot a lot more profitable but you know but what? no one's going to buy a business that's reliant on one client oh you know and, I, and that's another piece of advice do not have any of your clients making up more than 10 percent of your overall revenue do not have that and that goes when you sell a business as well mm. nobody likes to see um you know one client making up a good portion of your overall revenue mm. so that was you know something a hard lesson to learn but i would tell you that was our defining moment and that was probably the best thing that ever happened because it keep it kept us on our toes yeah that you, you you tend to learn a heck of a lot more in 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 a, in a in a failure than you ever will in success because you can just get lucky like walking into a hospital <laughs> with a brochure or yeah, you know, and, and you won't know necessarily how to how to repeat it, and uh, you don't learn anything. And yeah, you know, that 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 may well mean that that you hit something later on when you've kind of got a little bit, as you say, a bit arrogant, a bit cocky, a bit sort of like, yeah, we've got this all figured out. And then you're hit by something, and you have no idea how to fix it. Right. Whereas you learn from failure, you learn from struggles. You actually have to put in the blooming. You know, this isn't easy. No one, nobody said it was. It's high risk. It's high reward. Right. Yeah. So. And different people are motivated by different things. I will tell yeah. you, Adam, I'm motivated by fear. I never want to go back to the days that I, you know, would get paid on my job on a Friday and run out of money by Wednesday. That's what motivates me. You know, it motivates a lot of successful people. Fear is what motivates me. And I would tell you that because of that is what made me successful. And, and if anyone's listening to this and thinking, okay, I want to. I want to sort of take a little bit of what uh, what 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 Steve's saying and 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 have some of that like clear passion rub off on me. But not just that. Get the insights from somebody who has had success and learnt from failure. It's Acrobat Advisors, isn't it? And, and the website is acrobat.com. Is that right? Acrobatadvisors.com. Acrobatadvisors.com, and um, you offer business mentoring. Um, consulting to clients that are either thinking of starting or they're sort of partly along the way, but they just want to know what to do next. Exactly. exactly. So yeah, go to that website, take a look. Um, and uh, yeah, you have the option to, uh, to talk to the man himself. I'm sure if you, uh, if you uh, want to go through that, is there anywhere else you're active? Um, LinkedIn best for you or you a Twitter guy, you know, where, where, do people, where do you hang out? Uh, you can, yeah, I'm on Twitter, real Steve share um, at twitter.com. I'm on, uh, email steve at acrobat um, I have a book, as you know, uh, that you could you can look at as well. High risk, high reward. Um, and and all I, these links I'll put under the under the show notes as well, so people can come back to and all the rest of it. But yeah, I, I just have a look at what Steve's done. Re, you know, read more about his story, find out about some of the things he's done. And, and yeah, I mean, I'm I'm sitting here thinking, wow. <laughs> you know just just the story i love as i said at the beginning i love an underdog, uh, underdog story um you know hearing the the reality because i think today with you know anyone you know, anytime you go on social media and you see some idiot standing in front of a ferrari going look i made this amount of money in my sleep by you know i don't know whatever they were doing um it's just wrong it does not happen it's not true it takes hard work yeah. you've got to be ready to work hard yeah and it's it's why like you know what i love working with and, and people that listen to uh, people that listen to this podcast aren't that kind of person hopefully that you know looks at those those adverts and thinks yeah i can do that they're building real businesses that solve real problems for real people and that's that's what i love to help with and I, and i know that's i can hear that from you that's what you love helping people with and um yeah 
the second chance idea. Oh, there's so many things I could still ask you about, but um, yeah, we are we are at time. So, Steve, I just want to say a massive, massive thank you for sharing your inspirational story and uh, being so generous with your time. It's been it's been absolutely fantastic. And uh, I feel the same way. All that's left to say is happy fishing, Steve. Thank you very much for your time, Adam. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for tuning into the show today. I know there are a lot of podcasts you could be listening to, but you've chosen this one and I'm truly grateful for that. And if you've enjoyed this week's episode, I'd love if you could just take a few quick minutes to share your thoughts and leave an honest rating review for the show over on iTunes. It's not only important for helping others discover the show, but I also read each and every submission personally, and they really do mean the world to me. So thanks very much in advance and happy fishing.